At the time of this recording, the world is in the midst of a viral pandemic. Many people are afraid. Many people are in isolation, voluntary or otherwise. Some are sick or will become sick. And indeed, some are dying. In this special series of the Guru Viking podcast, I ask my guests how to work with fear, anxiety and panic. How to work with isolation. How to work with sickness and death and how to help others who are also having those experiences. Neither I nor my guests are medical professionals, and this podcast is not medical advice. Fear, sickness and death are perennial human experiences, and it's my hope that these episodes will be of use not only to those who are being affected now by this situation, but also of use to others beyond it. So, Godfrey, thank you very much for joining me on this special edition of the Guru Viking podcast. Well, you're welcome, Steve. It's my pleasure. Many people are worried and experiencing fear, anxiety, and even panic. What would you say to someone who came to you and said, Godfrey, I'm afraid, I'm panicking? Well, it's, it's not really possible for me to know what I would say in a particular moment, because if a person is standing in front of me, I'm going to be feeling them, and that's going to give, be giving me some information about where they're at and what, what might be the appropriate thing to say to them. But I, I do have, a, let's say, a, a generalized understanding of uh, what fear is all about, let's say. So, so I, I would... Um, imagine that I would I would talk to them about my understanding of of fear and what is your understanding of fear <laughs> well um, I would I would probably say that fear is a natural response to perceived danger um, where the word perceived is significant because Sometimes we're afraid of things that don't exist, but we perceive them as being a danger. So, so it's, in a sense, you could say natural that we respond to that because it's, it, it's a way of galvanizing our defensiveness one, one way or another. Uh, but as in the case of any, what I would call, intense internal emotion or energy or experience, there are two elements to fear, just as the can be seen to be two elements to grief or even anger. And one is what I would call the somatic element, and the other is what I would call the cognitive element. So my approach to helping people with these kinds of experiences is, first of all, to do whatever I can, not just verbally explain it, but take them through a process where they can understand and recognize the difference that let's say when you're afraid there are sensations and then there are thoughts um, and being able to distinguish between the two actually immediately in itself makes a difference because it tends to calm the thoughts the thoughts tend to become let's say less insistent um, and the feeling remains, perhaps, but the feeling doesn't necessarily remain either because it's, it's often that actually you're afraid in a way that's, what I would say, not particularly healthy, which means you're afraid of something either that you're just imagining or that you actually you, you're only afraid because you're not doing anything about it. 
and perhaps there is something you could do about it. Um, so, kind of that's kind of bottom line view, really. I, I'm tr I would try to help people first of all to distinguish between the the cognitive, the thinking element, and the somatic, the feeling element, and then to help them to really, really feel it um, and see what that produces. In your way of thinking about fear and strong emotions such as that, does movement play any key role or a role in uh, working with intense emotions? Um, it doesn't have to in the moment, um, but as let's call it an ongoing, um, I don't know, practice for, for helping to make this distinction between the cognitive and somatic, yes, movement definitely does, provided that movement is done for itself with no external purpose, you know, like, so going and playing tennis is not going to do the trick. And even walking to, to get into nature is not going to do the trick, but walking to be walking. Yes. So walking to be walking would mean walking, um, as a, you could call it an awareness practice, being aware of the experience of walking. But what that actually means is to be feeling the sensations that are being generated by walking. So if, if one has that kind of a habit or practice in one's life, then it's much, much easier to deal with intense energies because the, the, we have the pathways within us already to let go of the cognitive into the somatic, to let go of the, the madness into what is actually real that's left. Thank you very much. Some people are facing the prospect of, of getting sick or they're going to get sick or they are sick. What advice would you have for someone who would come to you and say, Godfrey, I've been diagnosed with the sickness or I am indeed sick? Well, I, you know, I don't mean to be glib, but I would just say take care of yourself because everybody has their own understanding of how to take care of themselves. And I'm not a, I'm not a medical professional. I'm not even a, some kind of health advisor. Um, so it's, 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 I don't think it's realistic for me to think that I would know what kind of steps somebody else should or even could take. Um, but I would just say, well, take it seriously. You know, it's, it's a real, it's a real phenomenon. It's a physical phenomenon. Um, and don't, don't think that you can wish it away. Do you have any advice towards their, say their mental state or their relationship to their very being sick in the first place? Well, yeah, it would be pretty much of the same vein as what I said before, that you know when when one is in um, you know whatever you want to call it an emergency state um, there is a, an underlying reality but what happens within our experience of it is that because we are very disembodied in our culture and the way that we live we live so much in our minds we allow our minds to run away with themselves about that reality and then we add layers of anxiety on top of the original issue, and then those layers of anxiety then become a real issue in themselves. But that real issue that's been created by the mind can be dissolved, but not by the mind. It can be dissolved or resolved by getting through the body. Now, this doesn't mean getting in touch with the body, getting some information from the body, or doing something special with the body. It just means by feeling sensations in the body and usually when somebody's sick there are sensations to feel the problem is of course that they may not be particularly pleasant so that's the learning process learning that actually just feeling something even if it's unpleasant will calm the mind because you only have so much you could call it metaphorically speaking you only have so much space 
in your awareness, in your attentiveness. If you're attending to your thoughts, then they're going to run away with each other, with themselves and they're going to get exaggerated. But if you're attending to the body, to physical sensations, in other words, if you're feeling the sensations being generated by the body, there's not so much room for the mind to play its game. And is this the heart of your your new work that you've been engaged in around embodied resilience? Yes, it is. Um, becoming intimate with physical sensations because of the effect that that has, especially on the mind, but also on the body. You could say it galvanizes the body because awareness seems to have this tendency of amplifying whatever it uh, shines itself upon. So it can amplify your anxiety. If you, if, if you focus on your thoughts, then your thoughts proliferate. But if you instead feel sensations, then mind starts to become very quiet. But within that quietness, there's, there's an extra element. You could say a clarity comes about its own, um, how shall I put it, nonsense. The mind can start to see its own nonsense and, and to, to no longer have to believe itself. You know, we all have these stories that, that uh, somebody can point out can't possibly be true, that our mind repeats like, I'm not good enough to be this. I'm not good enough to do that. I'm not lovable or whatever. These stories are really not true, but We've been led to believe somehow that whatever our mind says is true and we respond to it as if it's true. But actually, we have the capacity not to do that. And that capacity is expressed when we go to a movie. We watch the most terrible things happening, but we're totally relaxed about it because we know that it's not true. And we can actually learn this relative to our own minds. And I think it's a lot easier to learn that relative to your own mind than to learn that very elusive goal of meditation, which is for your mind to not have any thoughts. It's a lot easier to learn to not take the mind's thoughts so seriously. And the key to that is feeling sensations. Why is it, do you think, that the mind seems to engage in these stories, in these repetitive loops and narratives? Uh, why is it that that seems to be something that the mind does? Well, I would say, simplistically speaking, my simplistic response would be to look at it from the point of view of, of again, simplistically evolution, that, that mind has a function, and its fundamental function is to take care of body, to make sure body survives, um, because the human body is especially vulnerable. It's not particularly fast, it's not particularly agile, it's not protected, it has no built-in weapons. So this means that human beings, in order to protect themselves, need each other. And for this, they need to communicate, and for that, they need a mind. So the, the um, fundamental purpose of the mind is to take care of you. But we live in a, a world, and we've been living in this world for a very long time, thousands of years in Europe, um, you know, since the Greeks, maybe before, um, where mind has become a thing in its own right, not just um, to take care of the body, but has become the great problem solver because it has solved many problems. But most of those problems that it solved were invented. They weren't, they weren't pressing problems. People were not dying because they didn't understand what thunder was. And people were not dying because they didn't know that um, tissues are made up of molecules and molecules are made up of atoms. 
so 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 this is was mind going off on a on a, a journey of exploration which in itself is no problem but we we've we've gone so far with this that we've without necessarily having the concept but you can see in the way that we live we've got to a point where we think and act as if the only intelligence available to us is that of the mind and so therefore we ask the mind to solve every problem even problems that it's completely incapable of solving so a perfect example in my opinion is um in the world of yoga which as somebody who was a yoga teacher for a very long time i know a little about there's the example that you could say pranayama where you're told that you should manipulate your breathing in certain ways and cer certain things will happen now, this is a mind game and it's a very dangerous one and anybody who plays it seriously will be able to tell you it's a very dangerous one and the the within that dynamic there is a complete almost denial of the fact that the body is intelligent and the body actually knows how to take care of itself and it's very often only the interference of the mind that makes it difficult, even impossible for the body to take care of itself. So we now think that the body can't take care of itself, that the body needs a medical system, that the body needs a nutritional advisor, that the body needs other people's minds. But it's really not true. Um, so one of the things you could say, to put it really simplistically, that we all do within this culture is we give to our minds the burden of making us happy, the burden of solving all of our deep existential questions. Who should I marry? Where should I live? What should I do? How should I express myself? What form of creativity shall I get involved in? Whatever, all of these, which are deep questions and they're important questions. And if they're answered in a way that doesn't work, we're not going to be happy about that, but we give them all to the mind. So the mind is in these continuous loops because we're asking it to do things it can't do, but it wants to do it for us. So I like to see this as actually as what happens when, you're, when you ask your best friend to do something that it can't do for you. It, your best friend's going to keep trying. So we're actually asking our mind to be in these continuous loops by even if only unconsciously assuming that the mind can solve all of our problems. So if people just listen to you and I talking, thinking that they're going to get something of it, they're not going to get anything out of it. The only way they can get something out of it is if there's something in this conversation between you and I that they can put into practice, which there is. They can just feel sensations. But if they think to themselves, oh, so feeling sensations is the answer. That's great. Now I know the answer is to feel sensations and don't feel sensations. That's where most people are lost. thinking that to have information about something is to know something. But to know something is to experience something. How's that, Steve? That's great. You can't see my face, but I'm smiling. <laughs> I can't, no. <laughs> At this time, some people are facing the prospect of death or are indeed dying. What would you say to yeah. someone, Godfrey, who came to you and said, I think I'm dying or... I know that I am, in, in fact, dying. Well, again, I, I have no idea what I would say to somebody because it would depend on who that person was and, and what, what I felt. You know, so if somebody came to me that I knew very well, it would be a very different response to if somebody came to me that I didn't know. Um, so I, I, I 
you know, I really can't answer that, but I, I would answer it from a certain space within myself, which is that we all know that we're going to die. And in a sense, we all know that we're going to die too soon. You know, the only people who don't die too soon are the people who kill themselves. And everybody else, doesn't matter how long they live or what they do, they die too soon. So actually it's built in. It's already built in that we're all going to die too soon. Um, and I think that one of the important aspects of, of what I teach in, in Embodied Resilience is, is facing the truth about death, that it's going to come, it's going to come too soon, and it's going to come in a way that probably we're not going to like, not only to us, but to everybody that we love. So I, I think that that's, that is a taboo. Everybody knows that death is a taboo in our society, but it's a taboo that has to go, especially now. You know, because it's not just coronavirus that's bringing this issue up. It's, it seems to be obvious that this virus has come because of our invasive relationship with nature and our kind of imperialist encroachment is exposing us to viruses that were quite happy in their little ecological niche and then they're coming out. So it's pretty likely that this is not the last that we've seen of these sudden viruses coming. Um, but at the same time, there are all kinds of other things, you could say, potentially threatening us within the scenario of global warming, soil degradation, insect depopulation, etc., etc. So if there's ever been a time for the taboo about death to be put to one side, that time is now. We're all going to die. We're all going to die too soon. Very few of us are going to die the way that we would like. What are some of the negative consequences of not coming to terms with that fact of life? Well, it's a bit hypothetical. I mean, it, if you die by surprise, as it were, in a car accident or something, it doesn't really matter. But if you, if you, if you die of a disease and you know that you're dying, then you've got very little time to come to terms with it. If you've come to terms with it before that, then it doesn't even necessarily have to be a disaster. I have a very good friend who you know called Olivia. And this is a slightly different aspect of the story. But when her mother was dying of cancer, it was very clear to Olivia and to myself that her mother was dying. But of course, nobody knew when. But every other member of the family was in denial. Every other member of the family was planning next year's holiday each year, you know, except for Olivia. And then when her mother finally died, for Olivia, I know I'm speaking for someone else here, of course it was a sad moment, but she had the most amazingly beautiful experience, while her sister, who was sitting right next to her, did not, because she wasn't prepared. She'd been in denial for years. It had been going on for years. So I think it's, it's a little bit sad, really, if we're not willing to face clearly the fact that we are all going to die and we are all going to die too soon. How might one go about beginning to face that? To me, it's not enough just to talk yourself around it that everybody dies and everybody dies too soon. That's not going to do it. There, there has to be some something more than that. For example, as I recall, you've had a, a very intense near-death experience in the past. And as I understand it, that has probably changed your attitude to death in a very positive way. Yes. Right. So now I'm not saying people should seek out near-death experiences, although perhaps they do when they do bungee jumping and stuff. Maybe that's what they're after. 
from a deep level, you know. But um, in in my um, say journey of exploration of human nature and human intelligence, I have discovered various practices that seem to really help people to become relaxed about dying because of the nature of the experience. Um, one of them is a, is, a, is a breathing practice, which I was teaching some years ago now in um, a town called Sitges in Spain. And after I'd introduced the practice and people had done it for a little while, I invited anybody to speak who wanted to speak. And after a little bit, there was a gentleman at the back who raised his hand and I could see there were tears coming out of his eyes. And he said, well, I would just like to say that um, not so long ago, I was diagnosed as having AIDS. And the last few months have been very, very difficult for me because of knowing that soon I'm going to die. Um, and he said, but now for the first time, I don't feel afraid of that. So I'd like to thank you very much, was what he said. And I must say that I was a little taken aback, not so much taken aback um, that that um, he spoke as openly as he did. And he was obviously, you know, kind of moved quite deeply as everybody else was when they heard it. But also that it was really true. <laughs> it really did. It, it really did have the power to do that for somebody who was actually facing death, because I'm very, very skeptical, even about my own experiences and understandings. And, and I felt, or I feel as if I'm unafraid to die, but then I'm not facing death. So it's, it's not so difficult for me to believe that I'm not afraid to die. So to hear it from somebody who was actually facing death was a very moving experience for me as well. Gosh, what was that breathing exercise? Well, it's it's what I call a particular lens of what I call Zvaramukta, which is free breathing, and it's it's just it's just an invitation to experience your your breath in such a way that it feels like you're dying, but not in a bad way, in a really nice way. So it's like on every breath, it feels like you're dying, and then you come back to life. Is that something you could provide a short instruction set for here? Or is, is this not the correct context for that sort of thing? I would say it's not the correct context, um, but I, I would be quite happy to do a special um, session on it if you'd like to do that. Yeah, that would be fantastic. But we'd need a bit of time, a preparation. You know, you can't really go straight into it. Well, it just becomes a mind game. If people wanted to, to, to learn the practice, 45 minutes would have to be given to that. You know, so if we needed a little bit of talking explanation, and then maybe afterwards you could ask me questions that you think may come up in people's minds about what I was saying in case it wasn't clear what I was saying. You know, so I, I give instruction, and they're very simple somatic instruction, but not everybody totally understands them. Well, listeners, check the show notes. That class is available as a separate clip. Many people will have family members or neighbors, loved ones, who will be facing sickness or perhaps facing death. Do you have any thoughts or considerations for those who wish to help or support people who are sick or facing difficulty? Well, again, you know, I think there are many people, I have some friends that come into my mind who, who really specialize in this kind of work. And I don't really think that I'm, I'm qualified to be in any way specific. Um, 
But I, I would say that the the simple and simplistic answer is um, love. You know, generate, express as much love as possible. Um, of course, I would say that anyway under all circumstances, but um, especially especially then. Many people are limiting their social contact, going into isolation, whether it's self-imposed or imposed from the outside. Do you have any advice for people who find themselves entering into a period of extended seclusion? Uh, yeah, minimize screen time as much as possible because being on looking at one of those screens, whether it's phone or computer or whatever, um, is devitalizing and overstimulates the mind, so therefore actually enhances anxiety, even if it's used to avoid anxiety. And then that anxiety is going to express itself when you're asleep, not necessarily having bad dreams, but not sleeping so well. So I would say don't take it as an opportunity to, you know, read up on Wikipedia or whatever or, or blah, blah, blah. Take it as an opportunity to, to return to more simple things, but, you know, you can't really say what because you don't know how people live. It's very different if you live in a more rural setting or a more urban setting. But still, I would say um, you could, I would invite people to, to take the concept of meditation, which most people um, give a value to, and say, now's, now's the time to do it in a simple way. Not in the sense of sitting down, legs crossed for hours, but meditation in the sense of practicing being aware of what you're doing as you're doing it. And when you are doing something with your body, your body is generating sensations. So actually meditation when you're active means feeling sensations. So you can do something just for that, which is walking around. You know, some people, I believe, don't really have anywhere to go. You know, if you're in, a, in an apartment in a city in Madrid, say, um, I don't know if, if they're even allowed to go outside for any reason other than shopping. But um, going shopping, you can do it. Just feel the sensations or walking around the apartment or taking a bath or doing the washing up. But I would also say as much as possible, um, relate to nature. Um, so even if you're in an apartment, maybe you have some plants, just sit near them, talk to them, feel them. The sky is nature, air is nature, sunlight is nature, clouds are nature, rain is nature. So don't, don't um, isolate yourself from nature. Because nature is our, our, our matrix, our womb, our source, and we, we need to stay in touch. That's wonderful. Do you have any advice for people in terms of organizing or structuring their day? For instance, one of the things that uh, I think can happen in, in periods of seclusion, whether it's you know, a retreat or a situation like we're in now, is the day can begin to somewhat lose its tone. One can find oneself staying up very late. A day turns into night. Yeah. Difficult to organize oneself, difficult to get things done, difficult to start to take any proactive action. It can become quite d depressive. Or on the other hand, can sometimes become quite high-strung and highly stressed. Do you have any uh, advice about how to stave off that happening? Or if it, isn't, if it has taken hold already, how to come out of that? Well, I think stave it off, come out of it might be the same, the same response, really. Um, and, and I would say as much as possible, give the rhythm of your day to your body. As soon as you feel tired, go to sleep. Even if you just woke up five hours ago. As soon as you feel hungry, eat. But only eat when you're hungry. When you're thirsty, drink. But only drink to salve your thirst. 
So, so let your body um, determine the rhythm rather than you and me and somebody listening, sharing minds and saying, this is how it should be done. Everyone's body knows what it needs. And one of the, I don't know what the, what the, one of the deceptions of the mind is it's, it's coming from the mind and it's about the mind is that the mind is not the body, that there's the body and there's the mind, but actually the mind is an expression and an extension of the body. And if the body is not okay, then the mind is going to be anxious. So one way that when, when somebody is living their own rhythm in their own isolation, one, one way that they can make a big difference and that difference can maybe stay with them afterwards is to give that rhythm as much as possible to their body. If that's applied, that's really quite a rather radical position. Uh, it is a radical position from the point of view of conventional culture, but it's not a radical position from the point of view of human nature. It's a fundamental position. That, that, that is the way most human beings that, that lived before this civilization lived. You know, in the winter, they, they slept more. In, in the summer, they were more active. They ate when they could or when they were hungry. They didn't, they didn't eat because they could. They ate when they could, when they were hungry. They didn't eat. It was a totally different way of being. And that's programmed into us. We, 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 we are the intelligence that you and I are sharing right now emerges from the information in our cells. It's embodied intelligence. And in your experience and the experience of your students, people you've seen following uh, you know, th that sort of a perspective, what have you noticed as people begin to reestablish contact with that embodied intelligence? What I would say, the first thing that comes to mind is that it sounds a bit funny in a way. People stop taking themselves quite so seriously. You know, because most of the things that people take serious, so seriously are just nonsense in the mind. Um, so within that, not taking themselves so seriously, there's obviously a kind of a calming, you know, that mind, mind no longer has that kind of tyrannical power. It doesn't mean that the mind stops or anything like that, but it's just, oh yeah, there it goes, great. You know, so, so my mind, it's not that my mind never gives me disturbing thoughts or, or looping things, but I just go, okay, that's it. You can do that. You know, and, and sometimes I, I go with it because there doesn't seem to be any option, but I know what I'm doing, if you see what I mean. I know I'm just going into this movie now, and this movie has an end. And not only does this movie have an end, but it's just a movie. I'm not reading from the book of truth. I'm just listening to a story in my mind. Thank you. So, Godfrey, as we bring this special edition of the podcast to a close, do you have any parting comments for people in the situation that we're facing uh, at this present time? Yes, my um, parting comment would be, whatever you're doing, feel the sensations as deeply and clearly as possible. Godfrey Devereaux, thank you very much. Steve, you're very welcome. Thank you for listening to this special edition of the Guru Viking podcast. For more information and more episodes in this series, visit www.guruviking.com.